This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. My first guest this morning is Josh Smythe. Josh is the automotive manager at BCAA. Busy day for him. Josh, thanks for taking some time. Thanks for having us on today, Mike. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Are you going to be behind the wheel at any point today in driving? Uh, I'm behind the desk today. Uh, I'm going to be one of the lucky ones and avoid this uh, mess that we have out there. Okay. What's your main advice to people out there if they are going out, if they have to go out? Avoid it if you can, right? If you can stay home? Absolutely. If you you have the option to stay home, uh, today's the day to take that snow day. There's no question about that. Okay, let's no talk about if if you do have to get out there, Josh. Like, what is what is the number one tip from BCAA? I mean, it's got to be the tires, right? The tires are key. I mean, at the yeah. end of the day, the the, the tires are what are uh, what, what's going to keep you stuck to the road. Yeah. So tell me about that. What kind of tires should people have on there? Well, the, the winter tires obviously are going to be the ones that we're going to need today. The summer tires and the questionable tires that people have been rolling around are the ones I'm hoping are going to be uh, staying home today. Only winter yeah. tires are on the street today. The the snow is going to be too deep. The, the, the pack is going to be too slick. Uh, you're going to end up being an issue if if you're out there on anything other than proper tires today. Yeah, this is the problem is you got people with summer tires on their vehicle or they've got old worn tires on there and you're just asking for trouble if you've got those tires on your vehicle. Now, how about some driving tips in the snow, Josh? Let's say, for example, you go into a slide. What are you supposed to do now? Because someone told me that if your vehicle, if you lose control, the vehicle's sliding under you, you should steer steer into the direction of the slide. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Steer into the direction right. of the slide or or specifically try to keep your wheels pointing in the direction of the, the direction you want to travel into so that when you do get a little bit of extra traction that you're going to be po- heading in that direction instead of in some other direction because you've turned the wheel uh, uh, you know, a little bit uncontrollably in, in order to try and gain some level of control. I mean, is this the biggest hazard if you're on a hill? I mean, is that where you're seeing like most of the fender benders or people get in trouble? Well, I think a lot of the people that are getting into the fender benders are maybe moving a little bit quick for the environment. Yeah. We need to slow down in this kind of stuff, uh, give ourselves a, a lot of extra room and a lot of extra time. Other than tires, that's probably the biggest component to today is making sure that we give ourselves ample time and ample room. It's going to be moving a lot slower and the people on the road are, are going to be moving a lot slower. So we, we want to make sure that we're, we're not putting ourselves in a situation where you're, where you're trying to stop and because of what's on the road, you're just not coming to the stop when you expect to. 
Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Josh Smythe, BCAA, talking about the snowy driving conditions right now. How about driving in, in low gear? Like when I get behind the wheel of our, our family minivan, Josh, this thing is 20 years old. It's a tank. It just keeps going. And I've always been told, put it into the low gear, put it into first gear if you're driving in that snow or ice. Does that, should you do that? First gear, the lower gears are more effective in this kind of weather because the the higher gears equate to higher speeds. And of course, when you're in a lower gear, obviously you're not traveling that fast, but it it allows you the ability to not be on and off the gas and on and off the brake, which is creating that the the difference uh you know the kind of a jerky motion which will allow the car to break free of what little traction you do have so if you're shifting hard or you're braking hard this is what's going to break that traction that you have and create a slide okay what about using the handbrake if you go into a slide i think i saw that in a movie once maybe one of the fast and furious movies you pull that handbrake on that helps to slow you down is that is that possible no, leave that to Vin oh. Diesel and the action okay. heroes. <laughs> okay. okay, don't 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 even try it. No, don't even try it. Don't even All try right. it. All that's going to do is going to it's going to lock up your wheels and create a slide. You're locking up half the half the wheels you have, so your rear wheels are going to be bound. Your front wheels are going to be rolling, and and you're not going to have any kind of control. It might be a little bit of fun if you're maybe in an empty parking lot and you want to play around and practice and see what kind of traction your car does have but that's definitely not something i would do out on a public road you're you're going to put yourself in a situation okay josh what if you get stuck what should you do like if you're a bcaa member for example what can you guys do for someone if their vehicle is stuck well if, if they get stuck depending on obviously how they got stuck if it's just a little bit of snow you know just a little bit of a a tug or a little bit of a push can get you out of that spot and you'll you'll you know be on your way again but at the end of the day, this this um, this might be something you might be able to even get yourself out of if your if your emergency kit's got a proper shovel, some ice melt, maybe a little bit of tra- traction compound like some sand. We are doing our best to get out there. We are in code red right now. We're all all hands on deck, so we do have everybody out on the road. But just like the traffic, we can only move as fast as the car in front of us. So delays in arrival are a little bit there we ask for a little bit of patience please keep extra gas in your car if you do find yourself Mm. stuck and you are waiting for assistance at least you can keep your car running and keep yourself warm this is part of the reason why we want to make sure that everybody keeps an emergency kit inside their car yeah i myself caught myself getting dressed for a warm vehicle and not for the cold weather and then when my car came to a screeching halt many years ago, I wasn't prepared for it because I didn't have the proper clothes on me because I was anticipating a warm car. So dress for the weather outside. Yeah. And if anything happens, you'll be prepared. And then, of course, you'll have the extras like a blanket, maybe some extra gloves and such inside your emergency road kit. Josh, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. 
That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. We focus on other stories in the news as well, including the state of the Hudson's Bay store in downtown Vancouver. Now, I want to thank one of our regular listeners to the show, Jenny, who listens every day. I know she's listening right now. And she sent me an email the other day wondering about the state of this iconic department store. Jenny writes she was there recently. The escalators were all broken. She said four of the five elevators were out of commission. She had to hike up the stairs to the third floor. She likes the store. They say they have good sales. She likes their merchandise. But she was shocked by the condition of the store when she was there recently. She also couldn't find any a working drinking fountain in the store either. Now, this follows a, a very unflattering article in the Vancouver Sun in the last week as well, also decrying the condition of this uh, iconic store in downtown Vancouver, which the Sun calls a shadow of its former self. Most of the elevators and escalators out of service, arrows painted on the floor, to direct shoppers to a stairwell, eerily quiet in the store with no music or on in the store. What is going on there at Hudson's Bay store? It gets worse. Taking a look at the Vancouver Daily Hive, which is reporting today that the Hudson's Bay downtown temporarily closed and there was water leaking onto the store floors causing damage. I've got David Ian Gray standing by to discuss this now. First, yeah, Hudson's Bay, they've been going through a tough time for a long time, including last year, a lot of job cuts. Have a listen to this report. Bay Company is laying off another 250 workers in the second round of cutbacks this year. The Canadian retail arm of HBC says the latest cuts will impact corporate roles. This brings the total number of employees laid off this year to about 500. None of the job losses have affected retail workers at the company's 84 department stores. And a spokesperson for Hudson's Bay says economic pressures in the retail industry have persisted longer than expected, making the second round of job losses necessary. Okay, and we have seen some Hudson's Bay store closures in the meantime as well. Let's check in with David Ian Gray. David is a retail business expert. I'm very pleased he could come on with his analysis today. David, thank you for coming on. Oh, you're welcome, Michael. And yeah, sad, you know, sort of sad to watch, right? Yeah, what's going on there? I mean, that Hudson's Bay store there is an iconic downtown Vancouver store. That's a not a very flattering picture we're receiving here of this store. What's happening? Well, it's not unique to that location. The uh, the the whole chain is uh, really cash crunched, and I think you alluded to it. It's been a it's been a long process of decline, not something sudden. I think what's unique about the flagship store in Vancouver is they already earmarked that for a major renovation, yeah. you know, shrink the shrink the space, build an office tower. And, uh, you know, when when bad luck follows bad luck, uh, we're in an era now with high interest rates. And that's put a real chill on any kind of property development. And you throw in the mix, you know, the nature of downtowns right now. So uh, my guess is they just can't get that off the ground, um, that reno. Uh, but n- nonetheless, it's a real indicator of where the overall chain is if they're allowing something so iconic to look like that and feel like that. Yeah, just taking a look at a statement that the Bay, the Hudson's Bay store is, has put out about the uh, flooding that they experienced yesterday. They said this, uh, they released a statement saying that they expect the store to open later today. 
So that is some good news. And as, as you mentioned, there is a, a renovation that is scheduled for the store. Is this a reflection, David, would you say, of the the challenges generally for big retail, especially department stores, which used to be so dominant? Like, is the era of the department store over? Well, it's funny. I, I thought it was over maybe 15 years ago. So I'm actually pretty impressed that uh, we see a lot of them still around and and some of them are still doing okay you know simon's out of quebec is uh not every location's doing great but they're doing a little better um but we saw nordstrom leave uh we've seen yeah. sears leave uh so the department store in its heyday was a real retail innovation you know it's people coming into a dense downtown core and spending a day eating and shopping but uh today we have many many too many shopping malls and closed malls that kind of do that. And with so many more offerings and we have uh, the online channels that are offering things as well. So it's big real estate, big space. You have to stock it with lots of stuff that takes a lot of cash and inventory and to do it well, you need staff. Like the difference maker is, you know, well-trained, motivated, plentiful staff to offer service. All that creates a cost um, hurdle that, is less and less making sense in in modern retail. Yeah, and just touching on the the online alternatives that people have. I mean, are the major giant online retailers like Amazon, of course, is the giant. That's got to be difficult to compete against. I mean, is that a major factor here? It is for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is it's just it's taking share from everybody, right? People. By the way, I want to make a point that the majority of our retail spending still happens in stores, even though we think we're all shopping online all the time. Stores, mm. uh, in a way, they're very important. There are new stores. There's a lineup of international retailers trying to find space that they can't get right now in Canada. So physical retail isn't done, but the nature of it's changing and its space and how it's configured is, is much different than even 10 years ago. And in the case of... Uh, you know, a, a Hudson babies of the Amazon, if they start cutting corners, which they've been doing for a while, and there's no staff and service, and basically you're in a 3D example of a list of product, if you know what I mean by that, you know, it's, there's nothing very experiential about it. You're not getting a lot of knowledge. It's you go in and you find the item on sale and buy it. That's metaphorically not that different than going on to an online marketplace like an Amazon. Uh, and by the way, the other thing that's been going on is a lot of the the brands that you buy there have over the years been adding their own stores and also selling through their own online channels. So that's another way that the uh, department store has been hit. That's really interesting. Speaking to David Ian Gray, Dig360 Consulting. David is a retail consultant and expert in BC and Canada. Um, when you take a look at the tough situation that a, a chain like the Hudson's Bay stores faces right now, what do you think they can do or any sort of big retail brick and mortar store can do to survive this now? How do they keep those customers keep coming through the door? Well, I don't think, you know, I think your, your um, caller that tipped you off said she does shop the store. Like a lot of people do like shopping the Bay. One of the sure. problems is we all love the sales, right? It'll be 70% off and then you go to the cash and I'll take another 30 off. Well, that that's one of the reasons they're in a cash crunch. Uh, so one of the things they need to do is get out of that discounting spiral. 
And I, I, I think if they were to rethink what they're doing, just have stores in, the, in markets where there is demand for the product. They're, they're way over mall, uh, stored and mauled across Canada. But uh, shrink it up a little bit, uh, make the stores a bit smaller. But the idea of curating fashion, for example, or some housewares and doing a really good job of that, I do still think there's um, room for that. And, and, if, and if we're being sort of uh, clever with this, we can, we can call almost like a urban outfitters or an anthropology at a apartment store. They're just quite small and boutique about it. Um, but I think there's room there. I think I think for the big department stores, the only place they work is in really dense major markets like a London, New York, Paris. Um, they don't they don't work in a Winnipeg or a Ottawa. Mm. And okay. uh, so I think I, I just want to add one thing. The whole thing with yeah. the Zeller move they did, I found very confounding and confusing. I don't understand what that was all about because all that energy that went into that could have been in really doing fundamental restructuring that is needed here but ultimately it's a retail play it's a real estate play the owners are investment investment bankers and i think they're just trying to hang on to the real estate to maximize that value and the signaling of interest in a vibrant retailer seems to be waning Okay, well, we're following it closely, and let's hope there are better days ahead here for this very iconic store downtown Vancouver. They say that they will be open later today as the renovations and repairs continue there at the downtown Vancouver Hudson's Bay store. David, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Uh, you're welcome, and for listeners, just be nice to the staff in there. Imagine what they're going through. We want to return to a topic that we've been focusing on for you, and that is Canada's record high immigration targets here. Now, 1.5 million new Canadians set to arrive, 500,000 alone next year. Canada and the federal government are proudly uh, declaring themselves the most wide open and welcoming country in the world for new immigrants. Here's the question. Now, this country was built on immigration. That is for sure. My own parents immigrated to Canada. They both came from Ireland in the 1950s, and I'm sure glad they did. I know many listeners probably have parents who immigrated to Canada or grandparents. So we need immigrants to Canada. Here's the question. Can we absorb these many new Canadians in such a short period of time? Don't forget, on top of the immigration numbers, we've also got temporary foreign workers. We've got international students, a program that is unlimited, unlimited, no cap in the number of international students coming to Canada. I've got Aaron Woodrick standing by to discuss all this. This is a hot topic right now in Ottawa. Pierre Polyev, the federal conservative leader, he says, look, you're bringing in too many people and we're not building enough housing for them to live in. So he says we what we should do is index the immigration rate to the number of new housing starts in the country. Have a listen to him here. Very simple math. If you have more families than uh, coming, than you have houses for them, it's going to inflate housing prices. It's uh, no question about it. Uh, that's not, I don't even think the liberals are now seeming to acknowledge that themselves. Um, so my common sense plan is to link immigration numbers to the to home building numbers. 
Okay, the federal housing minister, Sean Fraser, was asked about this the other day, and he said, he actually said that sounded like kind of a good idea, and maybe Canada should move in that direction. So the government, the federal government, showing signals here of sort of wavering on their commitment to these immigration targets here. One of the things, though, that Fraser doubled down on the other day, he says, look, we need to bring in the workers here to build the housing that we need. Have a listen to him here, federal housing minister, Sean Fraser. At a certain point in time, we're going to run into a new bottleneck, which is the ability to actually get the homes built with the workers that we have access to. Uh, we need to uh, bring a sharpened focus to uh, bring a renewed focus to training in the skilled trades uh, for the purpose of generating a workforce to build more homes in Canada. Uh, we're working with uh, Minister Miller to uh, examine immigration opportunities to attract the skilled workers that we can't find in Canada. That's the federal housing minister speaking the other day. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Aaron Woodrick, McDonald Laurier Institute, the domestic policy director there. Pleased to welcome him back. Aaron, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Mike. Okay, it's interesting how the the talking points and the discussion on this topic here are continuing to evolve here, and I think this is yeah. going to be a hot topic going forward. This idea of indexing or linking the number of new immigrants to Canada to the number of housing, new housing starts in the country. What do you think of that idea? Sounds like a pretty good idea, Mike. I mean, it's uh, it's hard to attack. That's that's why you heard the minister himself say it's a pretty good idea. It's very rare these days in Ottawa that you have one party agreeing with something that's the other party's proposing. It's almost not allowed these days. So that's a sign right there that it it, it does have the appeal of common sense. And, you know, it is uh, it may be a little tricky to do. Uh, the question is like, do you base next year's numbers on this year's starts? What if next year's starts go down? Um, but it does provide something to anchor the number to, right? Rather than just plucking a number out of the sky. And it is similar to what we already do. I mean, we already determine the number, for example, in the in the, in the skilled uh, migrant uh, category based on job vacancies. So tying the number that we can take to something as important as housing, um, which of course, you know, we immigrants are going to require themselves, I, I think is, is as Mr. Polyev says, pretty common sense. Yeah, it sort of gets into... Uh... Uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg type argument, though, because you've got the minister saying on the one on the one hand, yeah, we need to build more housing and we've got we've got too many immigrants coming in. We can't house them all. And on the other hand, he's saying, well, we need to bring in more new immigrants to build all the housing. So it's like, yeah. how is this how is this supposed to work? Your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I guess the question is, what percentage of the migrants that we're bringing are, are building houses? Right. And if yeah. we are going to reduce the number, just reduce the number amongst the percentage that are not amongst the labor force for house building, right? I mean, I find it hard to believe that, you know, if we're really bringing in uh, up to a million people a year, um, not all one million of them are building houses. So there is a way to sort of um, adjust because we, people will recognize we have different categories of immigration. And sure. so uh, just, just uh, you know, you can leave the, the category that attracts the people to help build houses, leave that one high and look at other ones that you might want to uh, reduce the numbers of. Right. And when you mention a, an astronomical number like that, a million people in a year, like people might think like, whoa, where is this number coming from? Because this is you're talking about immigration, like permanent residents of the country, right. new Canadians coming. And then we've got temporary foreign workers and we've right. also got international students. Right. Where do the international students fit in on this? Because that's a, it's amazing to me that that's an unlimited, uncapped program. Yeah, that is by far the the largest number that that has been an expansion. In fact, if you look at the other categories, we're basically at the historical average. I mean, the, the you know the numbers seem high, but Canada's always been a high 
immigration country. What has ballooned mm. is that a student category, uh, some measures have it between half a million to 800,000, and that has doubled or tripled over the last 10 to 15 years. So this is the category that it's essentially a loophole. Um, you've even uh, seen this week the, the minister finally recognizing that maybe they're looking at things like a cap on that. And and frankly, that's a simple fix. If you put a cap on that, there's a simple fix from the immigration standpoint. It does um, create problems for the colleges and universities that are relying on those students to pay the bills. But in terms of actually controlling the total number of immigrants, uh, that is the category they really need to be looking at. Well, yeah, and it, it is interesting to hear the federal minister now talking about a cap here on the potentially on the number of international students coming to Canada. And I think it's an, an admission that I think they've been fairly open about this, too, that there's an economic uh, aspect to this, that colleges and universities have become dependent on the mm-hmm. tuition revenue coming from international students. And also the minister has been quite open saying that we, we need we need these international students to come here and, and work, work as well on the side and contribute to the economy, right? That's what's going on, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, uh, I mean, the, the, the contribution to the economy at large is part of it. The bigger chunk is definitely the revenue stream for colleges and universities. I mean, just to give you one yeah. example that we saw this morning, York University in Toronto, about 18% of their student body is international students, but that accounts for half their, their tuition payments. Right. So you can see how uh, financially valuable they are to colleges and universities. And, yeah. um, you know, the one thing that, that no one wants to talk about is, well, you, you, these university and colleges stand up and say, well, we need this money. And is it well, is it possible that you might need to consider just being a little bit smaller? Uh, that that's yeah. something that's taboo. No one wants to bring up. And I think that needs to be part of the conversation because uh, this this assumption that we just have to keep growing and getting bigger means they're going to become more and more dependent on international students as we yeah. go forward. Speaking of Aaron Woodrick, McDonald Laurier Institute, just to get back to the housing crunch that we're facing here now, let me play another clip here for you from the conservative leader, Pierre Polyev, and he kind of sums up the numbers here about how many new homes we need in Canada and how many we're building right now. The math is not working here. Have a listen to this. We have to build something in the neighborhood of 450 to 500,000 homes a year uh, just to, to maintain the current mm-hmm. level of affordability at today's immigration rates. Uh, we're building less than half of that. Less than half of what we need. Aaron, how are we going to fix this? Your thoughts? Well, and if, if people saw the, the housing start numbers that came out, well, they're actually down last year. So we're going in the wrong direction. So I think that it's a two-part solution. One is you've got to reduce on the demand side. So that's where this, uh, you know, anchoring the number of immigrants to the number of housing starts comes in. And then the other side, you need to increase supply. Um, there's lots of been ideas been thrown out there. The federal government has, has finally belatedly been moving on this. But, you know, we're going to need to look at some even more aggressive tactics. And that's what I think, I frankly think, Mike, the next election is going to be uh, a debate over who's got the best strategy to get the most houses built as quickly as possible. Yeah, I think you're right. Aaron, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Lomi. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.